0: Inside the train and remain seated at all times. <laughs> now then, if we can dream, we can do it.
1: Whether this is your first time visiting us or your 100th,
2: we welcome you to the Living Sea. We welcome you to Sea Base Alpha and Main Street Station. Last call. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new, one little spark lights up for you. Oh, hello there. So glad you could come along. I am the Dream fight. I just love these flights of fancy. Searching Disney World for trivia, rumors, anything that sparks the imagination. And you never know what kind of podcast you might come up with. Here's my favorite. An awesome guy, he runs a podcast. Each week is new and better than the last. He's here right now to bring it all to you. Here is your host... A guy named Lou <laughs> of the WDW Radio Show Podcast. Ha, ha, ha. Imagination. Imagination. WDW w- w- Radio Yo.
3: Hello and welcome back to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is episode 9 for the week of April 8th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and this week I welcome in a very special guest, Michael Brogy, son of Roger Brogy, the very first Disney Imagineer. He's going to come on and recount some amazing stories of growing up around Walt Disney, as well as working with Walt and his father, Roger Additionally, he's also going to share some of Walt's secrets to success, tales of Roy Disney, as well as Walt's interaction with his Imagineers. We're also going to talk about the extinct Fort Wilderness Railroad over at Walt Disney World, including Michael's work and preservation efforts for the engines and cars. We're also going to discuss the future of the Disney company led by Bob Iger and John Lasseter and so, so much more. Now, let me tell you in advance that while this interview is somewhat lengthy, I think you're going to find it fascinating. However, there was a great deal that was edited out simply due to try and keep the length of the show at some sort of a reasonable time. So what I'm going to do is make the full unabridged version available for download. I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes. Jeff Pepper is going to come on and continue with the whole railroad theme as he looks at the secrets and stories behind the train bulletins at the Main Street USA Railroad Station in another Disney Scene Investigation segment. With the Walt Disney World Marathon and Half Marathon rapidly approaching and some marathon-related news this week, Mike Scope is also going to join us and tell us a little bit of the best of the best of places to run in Walt Disney World. I'm also going to answer some of your emails and report on Walt Disney World news and reviews. So be sure to listen at the very end of the show for some of your voicemails as well. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show.
2: And now, a WDW Radio Show News and Views Report live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New
3: Jersey. Our first bit of news concerns the Disney theme parks on a worldwide scale, as according to a new amusement industry survey, Disney has set attendance records once again, as an estimated 112 million people travel to the various Disney theme parks worldwide. The report also showed that Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom was... Of course, first on the list as the most visited theme parks in the nation, with an estimated 16.6 million guests. Second on the list was Disneyland in California, followed by Epcot, Disney MGM Studios, and Disney's Animal Kingdom. It's also estimated that 62 million people visited Central Florida theme parks last year. So it's nice to see that tourism has finally started to rebound post-9-11, and everybody's getting back to being able to enjoy all the Disney magic that they have to offer. But... Back to the theme parks, specifically over at Epcot. The Epcot Character Connection is continuing to be upgraded and expanded, and it's going to reopen later on this spring under a new name, and that's going to be the Epcot Character Spot. Now, it's going to open a little bit different than it had before, because in addition to just being a place to go and meet characters, it's going to be themed a little bit better, it's going to be tied into interventions a little bit more, and it's also going to have more to do. There's going to be new technologies, interactive games, and a hands-on exhibit. What they're going to basically do is allow guests to go in and choose a path to one of five different experiences, all kind of themed into Future World. So, for example, you might have Mickey in a transportation-themed area, Goofy around a space-themed area, kind of tying into Mission Space, Chip and Dale in an energy-themed section, Pluto in kind of a tune version of the land, um, and Minnie Minnie Mouse kind of going through a communication-themed area. So... So it's nice to see that they're not only just bringing the characters in and giving kids an opportunity for something to do, but it's a lot more interactive. It's not just a room with some themed partitions separating the characters one from another and kids just kind of going down the assembly line, getting their pictures taken, there's stuff for things to do and kind of learn along the way. So it'll be interesting to see when that opens up um, exactly what it's going to look like. And speaking of refurbs and openings, there are a number that I should mention. The first is over at World Showcase, where last month, The Joy of Tea opened up at Epcot's China Pavilion it's a new chaos specializing in, obviously, Chinese teas, including flo- frozen-flavored tea drinks, as well as non-alcohol- uh, non-alcoholic and liquor-based ones, flavored iced teas, hot teas, beer, wine, and the like. And speaking of dining, the Hoopty Doo Musical Review, if you are heading down between August 30th and October 29th, Take note because it is going to have somewhat of a reduced schedule during that time due to an ongoing refurbishment of Pioneer Hall. For two days each week, the venue is going to be closed as uh, work is going to be going on to refurbish the location, including replacing the floors and things like that. So if you are going down, make sure you call ahead of time to make sure the hoop de doo is going to be showing on the nights you hope to attend. Over at Pleasure Island... Work is moving forward with improvements and new additions coming to the area as the West End stage and hub stages have been completely removed and many of the open spaces have been widened to accommodate hopefully more pedestrian traffic. Uh, I'd look for some new shops and dining establishments to open probably over the next few months, although no formal word from Disney um, has yet been given as to exactly what's to come. But I'd expect to see a very different Pleasure Island than what you may remember from the late 80s, early 90s. Back over in World Showcase, the Grand Fiesta Tour, starring the three caballeros over at the Mexico Pavilion, is now open. And from what I understand, the reviews have been very good so far. Uh, I will actually post a link in the show notes to a uh, little mini Grand Fiesta trip report that somebody on the Disney World Trivia Forums did post. They did say they thought the ride was really good. There was no animatronics, but all very well-done screens. They love the ride and the movie. And again, I'll put a link up to that in the show notes. And if you have seen it, by all means, please let us know what you think. Talk about it in the forums. I'm not going to really talk in, in any kind of detail about the ride itself. I don't want to kind of spoil it for anybody that uh, wants to ride it for themselves. But what I am going to do is play a voicemail that I received just earlier today about somebody that was able to catch an early preview of the uh, Grand Fiesta Tour. So here it is. And don't worry. It is completely spoiler free.
0: Hi, Lou. It's uh, Jeff Uh here at uh, Disney World, I'm at Epcot. This got done with the cast member preview of The Grand Fiesta Tour, starring the Three Caballeros. and It was actually very impressive. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, as you said before, there are no audio animatronics, it's complete visual uh, videos, but it's really cool. Um, they have some of the older videos, like the uh, men jumping off the uh, rocks to dive into the water, and they just add the three carriers onto it, mostly Panchito and Jose Carioca. Um, Donald's in a few of them, but that's because they're searching for him. Um, yeah, it was rather impressive. Uh, I enjoyed
2: it. I plan on going it again. So uh, they kicked me off. So uh, hope you have a good day and hope that information helps. Bye.
3: Back to food once again, of course. Uh, over at the Magic Kingdom, they're testing something out new known as the Express Cash Only Lines, at some of the counter service locations. And it's kind of like a fast pass for food, I guess, because there are some cash-only lines that offer a very limited menu. For example, over at Cosmic Rays Starlight Cafe, you can quickly get burgers, fries, and drinks. Over at Pinocchio's Village House, you can get cheese pizza, pepperoni pizza, and or drinks. Using only cash, using only a couple of items that are on the menu, I guess this is something that they're going to try out maybe throughout the parks. Um, There isn't any kind of definitive idea as to where they're going to be testing this and for how long this may go on, but it'll be interesting to see if this does actually take off and if it's something that they expand park-wide. Over in Epcot, there is news coming out of Illuminations, where Disney has announced internally that Epcot is going to be starting a new Illumination schedule during the month of April. And this is not a bad thing, this is a good thing, because what they're going to do is they're going to have a second showing of Illuminations Reflections of Earth. They're going to have an 11.30pm show during Epcot's Evening Magic Hours for the entire month of April. Now, this is a great benefit for the resort guests who visit the park on these nights and kind of make the most of their time by being able to go to dinner, shop, whatnot, not have to worry about rushing out to Illuminations. They can catch a second show at 1130. Above and beyond that, I have a little bit of inside information that I think you might enjoy if you are going to be down there. They are also going to be having Illuminations cruises for the 1130 p.m. shows on select nights. April 5th, 10th, 12th, 20th, and 27th, you can book a cruise uh, for Illuminations for that second show. Now, you cannot call WDW Play to book these cruises. You have to book them the day of the cruise over at the Bayside Marina at, in the, at the yacht and the beach clubs. Now, I'm not sure if they will allow telephone calls to the marina or if you actually have to go and book it. I will try and see what I can find out. But uh, for those of you that have been trying to get Illuminations Cruises, and especially during the busy times of year, it's very, very hard to get. This is your perfect opportunity. So like I said, you can enjoy the parks all day. You can have a leisurely dinner. You can shop, you can dine, you can have drinks, whatever, and then go see the late show uh, if you're able to make it. And then also get the Illuminations Cruise, which I highly, highly recommend. Other news coming out of Disney this week is that Disney has given same-sex couples the opportunities to enjoy fairytale weddings by adding commitment ceremonies to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, and the Disney Cruise Lines. Now, this is important because Disney has previously not allowed gay couples to have fairytale weddings, although they have allowed them to organize their own weddings or commitment ceremonies at rented meeting rooms at the resorts. Disney also had allowed gay couples to take part in vow renewals, things like that, but did not let them buy wedding packages because they required a valid marriage license from either California or Florida, which do not permit or recognize gay marriage. So, according to Disney, they prompted this change due to guest inquiries about the service and if they would extend it to uh, same-sex couples. And Disney, quote, said, "...we're not in the business of making judgments about the lifestyle of our guests. We're in the hospitality business, and our parks and resorts are open to everyone." Disney's Fairytale Weddings packages start at about $8,000. They include a wedding planner, ceremony, food, and beverages, as well as flower and table decorations. I'll put a link up in the show notes to the Disney Fairytale Weddings page for more information. Finally, as if the half-marathon wasn't sneaking up on me faster than I had expected, Disney now tempts me with a new offering, and that's the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror 13K. Disney said, they invite you, if you dare, to join them on October 27th, 2007 for a running event that lies beyond the fifth dimension, beyond the deepest, darkest corner of the imagination. And that's the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror 13K, which is the very first nighttime race in the Endurance series at the Walt Disney World Resort. It's obviously a 13K as part of the celebration of the 13th anniversary of the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Entry for the event Is going to be just $65, and it also includes a post-event party, which lasts from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m., and it's going to include live bands, Uh, everybody gets glow-in-the-dark race shirts, the post-event party, a uh, finisher medal, whatnot. I'll put links and all this information up in the show notes. You need to be at least 11 years old to participate, and uh, there's also a 6.5K, which is open to all ages. The course description itself is actually pretty cool, because you start and end at the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. You're going to go through the Disney MGM Studios, through Lights, Motors, Action, Stunt Show, down the streets of America, past the Sorcerer's Hat, over to Wide World of Sports, and then back and finish at the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. That's for the 13K. The 6.5K only takes you about halfway out and then back. And again, I'm going to put links up to all this in the show notes. But, you know, speaking of the marathon, so many people have emailed me about my uh, decision... Crazy or not to run in the half marathon in January. And so many others have decided to join me in the uh, fun and or torture of training. You all know about Jonathan Dichter's efforts to lose weight and train for the marathon in 2009, as well as um, efforts of other people who are joining in Jonathan about not only getting themselves in shape, but doing doing the same kind of thing and helping raise money for the Dream Team Project. So based on the number of people that have emailed me uh, that are planning on running in the half or full marathon uh, this coming January. I thought that maybe as the meet gets closer, we can see about trying to get together and arrange some sort of uh, WDW Radio, Disney World Trivia meetup after the paramedics have arrived <laughs> after the finish line. I'll put a link up in the show notes page. I'll start a thread over in the forums to DisneyWorldTrivia.com. We'll kind of get a running list of people who are planning on attending and or running in the marathon and see if we can get up some kind of meet. Back in January. And again, if you have any other news or rumors that you'd like to share, you can send an email to Lou at wdwradio.com or call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. Even the casual fan of Walt Disney World is familiar with the name Brogy. Having possibly ridden aboard an engine bearing that name on the Walt Disney World Railroad, other fans will know the name Roger E. Brogy as not only the name of the very first Imagineer, but the man who helped Walt Disney construct his very own railroad at his home. He was both a transportation specialist and mechanical genius, prompting the naming of him as a Disney legend in 1990. Michael Brogy not only serves to carry on his father's legacy, but his love of trains as well his work includes not only being the founding chairman of the Carrollwood Pacific Historical Society but authoring a number of books for both children and adults including Walt Disney's Railroad Story he's a nationally recognized authority on the life and legacy of Walt Disney and his work in preserving the trains at the Disney theme parks including Walt Disney World is equally as impressive and commendable so it's my honor and pleasure to welcome Michael Brogi to the WDW radio show
0: thank you Lewis uh- Pleasure to be
3: with you, Michael. There, there's so much that that I want to talk to you about, and I guess we'll kind of start at the beginning because you have been surrounded by what I and so many other like people like to call the Disney magic from a very young age. Uh, your father, like I said, was the first Imagineer. Helped Walt build his one-eighth scale model railroad, the Carol Pacific, in his backyard. Uh, you've seen so much. You've seen the construction of Disneyland and and the opening of Walt Disney World. What was that early experience like, you know, working with your father and and being around Walt Disney like that?
0: Well, when we use the word work, that's probably a stretch because (laughs) I was about six, seven years old when uh, we started going out to the Carolwood property, the Disney family's estate. And my older brother, Roger, my father and I were the crew for Walt. On his 1/8 uh, scale live steam railroad, and we'd show up uh, early on a Saturday. We would be given tasks by Walt. Uh, meet him in the red barn, and, uh, which was his workshop. And one of our our uh, enjoyable tasks was to uh, line up the consist, which is the railroad term for the array of uh, freight cars that would be on the run that day. And we'd haul coal over. Walt had. Coal ground to one-eighth scale nuggets in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Good anthracite coal that burned clean, and and everything with Walt was about detail. And uh, he even had a little scale 1-8 scale shovel that he shoveled <laughs> the, the nuggets into the the uh, firebox, and uh, we then we would, we'd take a uh, another bucket with water, and we would uh, fill the tender with water. So those were our, our tasks. And then as people would start to show up, Walt would get people rides around his property. And most part, these are strangers. These are people who just wandered in the property. Uh, they knew about the railroad because there had been magazine articles appearing about it all over the world. And people would find their way to 355 North Carolwood Drive, which was the address. And, and in those days, there was no gate on the front of the property. So anybody that could find the address could just walk in. And Walt, being the affable host, uh, never turned anybody away, and people would line up. I remember one time standing outside the barn with Walt one morning, and, and there were about 75 people lined up. He looked at all these people and he says, You know, he says, I, I don't know any of these people. Where are they, where are they all coming from? <laughs> but it, the word got around about this uh, marvelous uh, scale model railroad. Uh, a lot of railroaders consider that probably one of the finest uh, backyard railroads. Uh, ever installed on private property and had tunnels and trestles that took advantage of the natural terrain it was 5 acres of land of which about 3 acres was buildable the rest was sloped where he couldn't build on it but uh, he laid 2,615 feet of track and uh, 11 switches hmm. with a track control panel in the barn that had electronic controls that he could change his switches out on the uh, on the run Uh, from uh, the the switches inside the barn. In fact, we saved that uh, track control panel. It's now in Walt's barn which, uh, as you know, Lou, we we, uh, took that all apart when uh, the Disney family uh, knew the property had to be sold after Mrs. Disney passed away and and, uh, so we took a contractor up there and we ended up dismantling it board by board, numbering all the pieces and then did a deal with the city of Los Angeles and the L.A. Live Steamers and relocated the barn uh, to the L.A. Live Steamers area of Griffith Park, where it's open free to the public every third Sunday year-round. In fact, we like to point that out as being the only free Disney attraction in the world. (laughs) is Walt's Barn. And we operate it as the Carolwood Society on behalf of the Disney family.
3: You know, there's so many... Interesting elements of, of the story that you just told from, one, being as a child, being able to actually ride, being one of relatively, I guess, few people to actually ride on the Carolwood, although I didn't realize that Walt actually allowed people to, to come over and ride it, uh, as well as the incredible work that you did with the Carolwood Pacific and, and what you did with the, the, like I said, piece by piece dismantling and reassembling of Walt's barn, realizing what a true treasure that was going to be.
0: I think if you had to uh, look at Walt's life and who he cared to associate with in his own free time, uh, he liked uh, uh, guys and gals that, that enjoyed trains. And and uh, he could be uh, just himself. He, he wasn't the celebrity or the world-famous person. Uh, he was just another one of the railroaders uh, out uh, playing trains. And that's what I always, looking back on it, I realized that my brother and I were the short kids, and Walt was a tall kid, and we were playing trains
3: well you you actually led me to the question and you have to obviously forgive you know a question that I'm sure you get all the time, but you know especially knowing him from childhood what what was it like what was Walt really like um you know well
0: when we would show up in the morning, he would be in the barn uh tinkering working on stuff, always busy he loved to work with his hands he always respectful he could build things but walt uh, loved America and he loved the fact that railroads were an integral part of what made this country the greatest country in the world. And and to be around Walt, uh, the point of your question, uh, he was very curious about what you thought. And when he talked to you, it wasn't like an adult talking down to a child. He would kind of uh, talk to you at what I call eye level. He would not... Uh, mince words. In fact, uh he was known to have quite a salty uh vocabulary. <laughs> Nothing like what you know, he was portrayed. Uh he could cuss up a, a blue storm. He never sweared, but he could sure cuss. And uh and uh, I I, I can tell you from first hand, uh, it didn't matter if the Brogy kids were around, uh, if he felt like saying something <laughs> he'd say it. And uh and and one of the things too is is uh, my brother and I. This was our our pay for for working on the railroad all day. And it, you know it was work, but we enjoyed it. But uh, after all the rest of the uh, drop-ins, guests, and so on had left for the day, uh, a small group of us would go up to the uh, house. Uh, next to the house was a pool house, and inside was a multiple use room in one area was a, a full liquor bar and the other area was a full ice cream parlor with all the flavors of ice cream and nuts and syrups and all the the things you need to build uh ice cream sundays and so on and Walt would get behind the the bar he would build drinks for the adults and then my brother and i were sitting up in these tall stools there and he would get back there, and he would make these one-of-a-kind uh, Walt Disney Sundays. <laughs> and that was our pay for the day. And, and they were in these large glass boats, we called them. And he'd pile them high with ice cream and all kinds of con- concoctions, and, and no two of them were ever alike. There, he took some delight in trying to come up with some new concoction, new design. But uh, looking back, uh, that's kind of a neat thing to sit up there at that ice cream parlor and and have walt uh, make you a, a great ice cream sunday of course in those days we're talking pre-television uh although television was around but disneyland as a television show had not started there until october of of 54 and then we're talking early 50s here 50 51 52 so uh he wasn't the recognizable celebrity uh... that he became later because of television so to be around him you know he's our dad's boss and you know he's this guy that we marveled at his creations and knew who he was and knew what he had done but uh... It, there wasn't this kind of uh... starstruck uh... he didn't inspire that uh... it was more uh... treat him as uh... as an equal and he'll do the same for you and and uh... I could tell you some stories about <laughs> Walton being in his backyard that might be kind of fun to hear if uh, if you want to go into it. Sure, absolutely. Uh, um, well, one time, and it, I must have been seven, every year uh, the company would put on a Christmas party for the employees in the theater. And in those days, the company was small enough to where you could invite all the employees' kids and you'd sit in the theater. It was a 900-seat theater. Uh, on the studio a lot and uh, it was a great a great thing because you'd see uh, a feature film cartoons and then as you left each kid was handed a wrapped box of all the current uh, theme merchandise and uh, Hmm. you know literally looking back a a treasure of disney uh, commemorative memorabilia and all the merchandise. Of course, we'd play with it, break it, and it'd get thrown out. <laughs> what we should have done is just shoved all those right. into a storage <laughs> place somewhere with a padlock on it, and and, uh, and then 50 years later, we would have retired.
3: <laughs> everybody so, everybody who's listening is slapping their heads, going, God, why didn't somebody just put one of those away somewhere and not open I it? I know.
0: And we didn't. They were given to us as things to play with, and we did, and, and they got, uh, you know, and then you'd break them and they'd get thrown away. They'd, Anyway, uh, this one year uh, they changed the format, and instead of the usual feature car, feature film, and cartoons, and so on, uh, they changed the format to live uh, specialty acts—you know, toddlers and jugglers and uh, magician, and so on—and always Ducky Nash, which we all enjoyed. Uh, Ducky Nash with his ventriloquist dummy of Donald, and that—that that was always a treat. But anyway, this year they they changed it to live acts, and then they always wrapped it up with a the night before Christmas cartoon, which is kind of a, a classic now, and uh, and so that following weekend out at the Carolwood Estate, uh, I'm standing outside the barn, and I said, you know, Walt, I said, uh, I really prefer the the uh, feature film and the and the cartoons. Uh, to the live, uh, you know, the live acts that we we saw, and uh, he looked at me and he had that way of kind of looking at you, where one eyebrow would cock up and the other one kind of down and kind of staring at you and studied you for a minute, and he said his comment was, "Well, hell, you just can't please everybody." <laughs> <laughs> he turned and walked back. He walked into the barn. Well, I I went home and told my mother what had happened, and and I said I was kind of surprised at his reaction. And she was very unhappy with me. How dare I criticize the head of the company for producing a party (laughs) for you kids? You know, it's all just done for the the enjoyment of the, the employee kids. And I had the audacity to criticize it. So she made me sit down and write a apology letter to Walt, which I did. And he never said anything about it, but he probably got a kick out of getting the <laughs> apology letter, because he knew he knew that my, my mother probably made me do that. But uh, what the payoff was, the following year, they returned to the uh, f- original format of a feature film and cartoons. Got rid of the live acts, except for Ducky Nash. So what that showed me was that Walt listened. And even though he chided me with, well, hell, you can't please everybody, but the fact is he remembered that and, uh, and changed the format back. One of the things that kind of reflecting back uh, that I thought your, your audience might be interested in is that uh, I had the, the, the good sense to ask Walt, uh, and that must have been about 13, uh, and it's about the time that he and I did the first run around Disneyland in the steam train. Uh, which was a great benefit uh you know, the fact that I did get to ride on the first run around the park with Walton. And, and I asked him, uh, how did you do this? You know, looking at Disneyland and all the f- classic films up to that time. And, and uh, you know, I just marveled at it. I, and what I was looking for is, what what is the secret here? What what can I learn from you? And he he looked at me and says, you know, he said, there's there are words that, that I I really believe, if you if you if you believe in them and practice them, uh, they're the secret to to success. And he said they all start with C. And so obviously I was very interested in what he had to say. And he says, and he rattled them off. He says, is curiosity, confidence, courage, consistency. And he said if you apply those, he says there's no limit to what dreams you can you can create uh out of those four words and he said most importantly of all those words is confidence he said you believe in something you believe it all over he said don't ever let anyone tell you you can't do it and if he had listened to all the quote experts disneyland would have never gotten built and certainly the economics of it were just startling for the time 17 million dollars Hmm. And, uh, you know, he went against all the conventional thinking of an amusement park to create this theme park. So, I mean, there are, there are many, many reasons why Disneyland shouldn't have succeeded. But what the experts didn't reckon with is the fact that here's a guy that had unbridled energy, confidence, and this wholehearted belief that this would work. And he would not listen to anyone saying that, you know, Disneyland's is the dumbest idea they ever heard. And a lot of people told him it was dumb, including CBS and NBC that weren't interested in, in uh, investing in Disneyland. ABC did, and they ended up with 35 percent ownership of Disneyland, which the company bought back in 1960. And then, interestingly, years later, Disney acquires ABC. <laughs> so it, Comes it's, 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 it's really interesting, Lou, to, to kind of look back and see uh, the cycles and the impact of this one man of not only on film and and uh, of course the theme parks around the world and and all the impact uh, that he's had on on entertainment in general and family entertainment, which he literally established. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are people doing cartoons and so on, but he took it to quantum leaps beyond a visual medium into a participatory experience, which I think mean, most people now understand it because they see the results. But when you look at the era that he he was in at the time uh the, the visionary thinking is just uh, uh amazing to to analyze
3: and that's exactly the the term i was going to use you know truly hindsight being 2020 20, he was a visionary and i see that you speak about him um you know professionally and personally the same way so many other people that i've spoken to have which is with such reverence and such respect for what he's done uh, and clearly the mark that he has made, you know, not only in this country, but really worldwide on so many different levels beyond theme parks and animation.
0: And as I like to say, um, Disneyland was a gift that Walt gave the world and the ribbon around the gift was just a uh, steam train. Uh,
3: that, that's and, a, that's a great way to put it.
0: And, and the, and true of the magic kingdom at, at Disney world where, uh, or as I call Walt Disney world, so many people shorten it, but you know, it was Roy, uh, Roy O. Disney that after Walt passed uh, December 15th of '66, uh, Roy convened a meeting after the funeral and everything and, and he, he got the leaders of the company together and he says you know we're committed to uh, do that project in Florida and he had promised Walt uh, just before Walt died uh, he got Roy to promise him he wouldn't retire. Roy was 8 years older than Walt and, uh, and he wanted to slow down. He wanted to retire. But Walt got him to promise that he would stay and see the, the project in Florida uh, through to fruition. And and at that in those days, it was called Disney World. And it was Roy that said to all of the, the leadership in the company, he says, I'm naming that project from this day forward as Walt Disney World, not Disney World. And the thing about Roy that I always admire is that he he got it he understood that it was about Walt and his name and his which became an, an international brand but it was all really embodied in that that name of Walt Disney and and Roy was the kind of guy that supported his brother he, there was no uh, envy or jealousy about the fact it was all about Walt in fact i i actually think Roy enjoyed the fact it was Walt not him <laughs> that got all the attention and roy was satisfied to run the business side and uh, they made an incredible partnership and i think what we can learn from that is that each brought to the partnership uh their own skill set and talent and they each respected the others and uh and together they created a synergy that a lot of people looking back said you know what roy was a bank teller in in Kansas City. Uh, Walt was this uh, kind of itinerant filmmaker and cartoon producer but had they not had the combined talents a lot of people feel they may not have ever achieved what they did but it was that trust they had as brothers and worked together and of course Walt had a skill for drawing talent into the the company and he said many times to many people uh, I hired you because you're smarter than I am or you're better at what you do than I am and that's why you're here and by saying that I gave Walt the license to uh, demand a very high level of performance and so the, the people that worked for Walt and got uh, accustomed to that uh, teamwork of, under Walt's direction uh, he, he invited critique, he invited criticism, uh, disagreement but once the decision was made, then he expected every da- everyone to support the decision. And so he didn't uh, ever give quarter on somebody providing derisive comments after something had been launched and a project had been approved going forward. He says, you can always tweak it, make it better. But he said, let's all support the mission here, and let's all do the- work on this together. And he really fostered that, and he did it as a Dutch uncle. And he could be tough. No question about it. He could be really, really tough, <laughs> but it was a kind of toughness that you would get from your, your dad or your uncle. It was that kind of, of tough love, as it's, it's just now called today, but, but uh, people aspired to do better because they wanted Walt's approval, and uh, he, he was very, very careful not to give direct uh, compliments, mm-hmm. and uh, he would give it through third parties. And uh, I remember riding in that that uh, cab around the park with Walt that that uh, June 18th, uh, 55, before, the, month before the park opened. And Walt turned to me and says, "You know, Michael, he says your dad's a genius." He said, "I don't know if you know that." And I said, "I, I didn't say anything. I just I just kind of marveled that he he was the genius." But <laughs> here he's telling me that he said, "Your dad's a genius." He says, "This park would not have happened without your dad." And he wanted me to know that, but he I knew that he Walt never made that kind of any kind of comment like that to my father directly, and uh, nor would he. that wasn't his style, but he would tell a third party uh no. about someone, and he would compliment through other people knowing it would get back uh to the source. So that was an interesting part of Walt's character was his understanding of human nature. And here's the guy with a 10th grade education. But he loved people, and he loved the interaction with people. He, and he was a student of human nature. And uh, he demonstrated numerous times his ability to, to decipher people's behavior and how they would react to things. And and he, as Ward Kimball described him, he was just the son of a Midwestern farmer who happened to be a genius. And his genius was in, in other areas. He was... Not a mechanical genius, Uh, he was not an artistic genius, but he was a genius at understanding human nature and how people would react to things, and he also was a genius at story. And everything that he ever touched, the quality of the storyline was what was the foundation of it, and that's, in my view, is what really separated the product of Disney from others who tried to compete is the the storyline, the quality of storyline. You see it in the theme parks, in the books, the movies, everything that the that Disney the Walt himself was involved in uh, was quality of story. And and that's being carried on today now with with John Lasseter. John's got that gift of storyline. And I have great respect for John. He's one of our board members um, in Carrollwood and also a fellow railroader, as you as you probably know. Mm-hmm. And and John, uh, I think, has uh, a great amount to contribute to the future of the company, and I'm really looking forward to seeing further profit from him.
3: You mentioned John Lasseter, and you were talking about Walt Disney and Story, and you actually went exactly where I was going to go. Again, as just a kind of a, a quick aside from what we were talking about, which is I said to somebody the other day, I think that what we're witnessing right now In the company and what's going on with Bob Iger and the the influx of creativity that John Lasseter brings again, certainly not in any way meaning to compare him to Walt Disney, but that same type of creative uh, fire and that creative vision. And I think that, you know, history, we're going to look back on this time in the company's history and see that something really good, something really special is is going on right now and we're, we're paying witness to it.
0: Well, I agree, Lou, and, and I have great respect for Bob Iger. I, I consider him a personal friend, and uh, I supported him uh, in uh, becoming the uh, president and CEO of the company, and and had conversations with him about that uh, prior to that uh, happening. and And the company was, uh, you know, as everyone knows, was going through a tumultuous period, and and. Uh, and and Bob Iger has brought uh, a sense of order back to the company, and he also is a, a type of guy that trusts people to do their jobs. He doesn't have to micromanage uh, their their activities, and and uh, he's a likable guy. He's very approachable, very affable, and he came up the, through the ranks. And he's not a, a silver spoon guy. He worked his way up, and uh, with skill and and uh... got a few breaks along the way and the fact that cap cities and abc was acquired by by disney and and uh... he came along with that that package and uh... he's a fellow that has uh, tremendous uh... leadership skills that inspires people and and he's bright enough to know that you give lasseter uh... the the freedom to to run and that's something roy uh... e disney said uh... The creative people can't be corralled. You got to let them like mustangs. You got to let them run free, and yeah, they'll make mistakes. But you know, you you uh, you, you cannot corral freedom of creativity. It's got to be something that people can uh, can try and and uh, you know bend the limits and push the envelope and all the the phrases. But but uh, Roy uh, Edward Disney has been a, a tremendous factor also, and the renaissance of the company so it's i agree with you i think we're on the verge of just a whole new era of uh uh, and i'm i'm looking forward to it i'm uh, always looking to the future of what disney's going to bring us at the same time i enjoy the classics and the the traditions the history but uh it's always what what the next release is going to be what's the next uh, park attraction um you know the next venture and the uh, medium, I mean, the company's looking at all these different mediums that are now being developed for delivery of content. And, and it's a smart company for, uh, being driven by, by people that are bright. And, and uh, it just happens their product uh, is uh, family entertainment. So what could be better than that than making world uh, that desperately needs a little more happiness?
3: Absolutely. And, you know, much in continuing the, maybe the philosophy of Walt Disney, you know, Bob Iger is surrounding himself... With creative, smart, intelligent people uh, like John Lasseter and like Walt did, like you know, bringing people like your father in to do the things and and giving them free reign and and what Bob is doing, Bob, like I like I know I'm gonna call him Bob, uh, what Bob Iger is doing with embracing new technologies and like you said, new mediums. Uh, again, I think this is just a really really exciting time to be a, a Disney fan.
0: Well, one of the things in in the history too is is how the company recognizes. Uh, the talents within the company of course everything was under walt's name but you know in establishing the legend awards and my father as you mentioned earlier was named a disney legend that was 1990 he passed away the following year so he got to experience the presentation of, of the legend award and there were 16 of us that attended that ceremony at the studio and and eight of us have worked for the company so we have a I don't know, 140-some years of Disney time in our family. And my uh, nephew, Gary, uh, is the head of the machine shop, the precision Mm. camera uh, maintenance and so on, just exactly as my father was. So there's a gene that's passing down through the family. I consider myself kind of the black sheep. I was (laughs) the one that didn't become an Imagineer, but I told the others in the family, you guys build it, and I'll write about it. (laughs) So we, we each... You contribute our own to uh you know to the uh to the disney uh body of knowledge
3: you know, we were talking before, um, you know, you said you kind of, um, w- while we embrace the future of the company, it's, you know, you and I uh, are both kind of, we, we, we long for the early days too, and we, we also, I think, like some of the uh, the early days of the theme parks. And let's kind of go full circle, because um, we started talking about trains and your relationship with trains and, and the love of trains that, you know, Walt had, your father had, and it was obviously passed down to you, and all the work that you've done now. With trains, both in the theme parks, so and we're going to talk about your book as well. But one of the things I wanted to quickly talk about with you was what I consider one of Walt Disney World's uh, lost treasures, and that was the closing of the Fort Wilderness Railroad. Uh, and now, actually, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but while you were doing uh, research for your book, which is called Walt Disney's Railroad Story: The Small-Scale Fascination That Led to a Full-Scale Kingdom, that's when you actually came across the uh, the old trains at a Disney boneyard, correct?
0: That's right, uh, and I have to say the the, the, the management at, at Walt Disney World were terrific. They literally gave me run of the place, anywhere I could climb or crawl under or whatever. There was no restrictions to where I could go throughout the park, and, uh, and so I, I asked the question, I said, whatever happened to the Fort Wilderness equipment? We went on a search, and uh, you're right, they were found in a boneyard, D6, one of the boneyards out in the... Uh, outer reaches of uh, backstage uh, Disney World. And uh, there they were, sitting, forlorn, rusting away in the hmm. Florida weather, and uh, rotting, and just it was just appalling. And here, four uh, steam engines, uh, 12 of the cars, and uh, originally they were stored in a warehouse uh, with covers on them, then I guess they needed the warehouse space. They moved them outside. The covers kind of rotted off. Then they were stuck out in the boneyard, kind of just like a slow death. And uh, when I got back to California, I got all these scolar, and I said, Marty, I said, there's a million dollars worth of company <laughs> assets sitting there in the boneyard just rusting away. And uh, I said, if the company doesn't want that equipment, the Carrollwood Society would like to take it on as a project to save that equipment. What's going to happen to it? Well, the way they got rid of equipment in those days is you take a cutting torch, you cut it up, and bury it, and that's how they dispose of equipment. Sometimes they auction it off if it's something that the company didn't feel it, it, it uh, had a risk of liability. If somebody would uh, steam up a locomotive, though, and something happened and there could be some liability questions so anyway we put on a campaign and it took us five and a half years hmm. to finally get the company to agree working with a lawyer uh that worked for the company down at, at walt disney world and uh we finally got an agreement hammered out and uh went in there Bill build dundas uh rented some flatbed trucks hauled out all four of the engines 12 of the cars Uh, three of the engines are here in California one is uh, in Oregon at Jim Zordich's place he's a friend of Ward Kimball's there is an uh, an effort to save them preserve them and uh, maybe in one or two cases they may even run again, who knows but uh, the important thing is they're not going to just rot away and uh, there's a whole chapter in the book called uh, the Fort Wilderness Folly, which talks about this uh, railroad and why it failed. And uh, there are a lot of reasons why it didn't make it as an attraction or as a transportation system. But and it's all recounted there. But the bottom line is that equipment was saved. But interestingly, from a historical standpoint, those are the only steam locomotives that were ever built by the Disney company.
3: Right, they were they were built by by Wed and uh, well, they were designed by, by Weden and, and built by Maple, right?
0: Maple. In fact, Maple is on the builder plate, and uh, the, the interesting thing about that is the first two engines that were built for Disneyland they were scratch built. Those were actually built by Walt's private company, Law Enterprises, because he financed and owned the Disneyland Railroad as his personal property. So those were built by Walt. They weren't built by the company.
3: Were those the the Holiday and the Ripley that were? Yes. Okay. When you were talking about the Fort Wilderness Railroad, I actually have some fond memories as a kid of riding, although I think many people probably are not all that familiar with it because it only ran for about four years from 73 to 77. And I was happy to hear about how the engines are being preserved. But just kind of a little trivia fact, a lot of the passenger cars actually showed up um, kind of all around the Walt Disney World property. I remember one of the original ticket booths over at Pleasure Island was one of the passenger cars.
0: That You are right, and uh, that's why there there were 20 cars originally, and we only got uh, 12 of them because the, uh, the other eight were dispersed around the park. Uh, actually, two of them ended up on Pleasure Island as ticket booth, and those eventually were auctioned off. Somebody bought those. And uh, one or two of them were used as uh, protective uh, areas for bus uh, stops. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they found various uses for those cars. Fortunately, most of them ended up in the boneyard and we were able to uh, salvage them.
3: Well, one of the things I remember uh, about Fort Wilderness, and, and one of the reasons why I consider it to be somewhat of a lost treasure, was even though the, the engines themselves and the track was much smaller than what you saw at the Magic Kingdom, Unlike a ride, you know, where it took you maybe around the park, the, the guests could actually use the, the uh, railroad to get around the Fort Wilderness campground. It was actually a transportation you know, system. I, no question about
0: the transportation system. ran for about three and a half miles. And for a very small engine, it was really undersized for the demand that it was uh, placed on. Uh, not a lot of uh, fuel capacity, not a lot of water capacity, and they tend to, they tended to run out of fuel, um, which is not a good idea. And,
3: that, and that's what I was and going to talk they, about next was was part of the reasons for you know that you chronicle in the book about you know for the the railroads demise and those being a, a couple. Yeah, well, of well,
0: they, they were the operators were were uh, you know basically kids. They weren't you know certified steam engineers like the the big railroad was and and so there were derailment problems cuz uh, the track wasn't properly uh, laid as it should have been and uh, no track plates between the uh the rails and the uh the ties uh, wasn't properly tamped uh, the ballast wasn't properly p- prepared so operationally had a lot of problems and uh and so it it it, it was besieged with operational uh, issues and the other thing that kind of sealed it for the Fort Wilderness was the fact that they installed a, a steam whistle on them that were audible for about three miles. <laughs> I mean a much bigger whistle than you probably really needed. And the way the track wound through the campground, uh, you were obligated as an engineer to sound your whistle at every crossing. And so here people are trying to sleep in the campground and well into the night are these little engines running around tooting their uh, their 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 uh, steam whistle and keeping people awake. And some of us would think the sound of a steam whistle would be kinda neat, but your kids are trying to sleep and uh you know, they've been up all day playing in one of the parks and then you're then you're every uh ten, fifteen minutes there's a steam whistle. So that was another thing that kind of sealed the fate of the little engines.
3: Well, was the foundation also uh, beginning, you know, was the ground maybe not set right for it? Was, it, was the was it the foundation of the track starting to slip and, and get kind of into those swampy areas?
0: Well, it, it, the problem was that the, because the balance wasn't laid down first and you create uh, drainage and so on, that you uh, you had the water uh, sitting underneath the, the ties and as the train run over, it would slip back and forth so there was play. And that would cause, uh, you know, variations in the in the gauge of the track, which would cause derailment. So you had a lot of engineering problems going on there. And, and uh, like I say, it goes into a lot of detail in the in the chapter in the book about about what happened. And
3: again, let's just quickly touch on your book. Um, and again, I'll put a link up to this in the show notes because you did mention it. And so many of the things that we've just I mean, graze the surface on can be found again. The book is called Walt Disney's Railroad Story: The Small-Scale Fascination That Led to a Full-Scale Kingdom. Um, tell us a little bit more about what we might be able to find in the book.
0: Well, what originally uh, when I first approached the Disney Company, uh, oh. this was in the early 1990s. I uh, said, so "There's an untold story about Walt's lifelong passion for, for, for trains." And uh, I said, I'd like to write a book about that. And uh, I got an answer back from the publishing office in New York uh, saying that uh, they thought that uh, such a subject might make a good uh, magazine article, but certainly uh, didn't carry the weight uh, that would justify a book.
3: <laughs> now, I'm laughing because I know how many pages long your book is. So
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 432 pages 350 photographs, 100,000 words. And that's one heck of a magazine (laughs) article. And uh, and we were gratified that the uh, year after it it came out, uh, it was awarded uh, the Benjamin Franklin Gold Medal as the Best Biography of the Year. You know, there's something special about people that love Disney. And uh, I've yet to meet a person uh, in my travels That we couldn't share some common uh, bond with relating to Disney. And be it a book, a movie, a, a theme park experience, something. And every person's background has a connection back to Disney. And it's, you know, literally part of our American culture.
3: I agree, and there there's definitely some sort of unifying force all about Disney, and I'm also going to point people over to the Carolwood Pacific uh, homepage. I think it's a great organization, and you don't have to be a die-hard train aficionado. I'm actually a member, and you know, I, I couldn't tell you HO versus G versus anything like that, but it's again that, that tie to Disney and that element of Disney that uh, wanted me to be, you know, a part of such a wonderful organization of what you guys are doing over there, and uh, it, it's something spectacular from what everyone has told me, you know, visit to Walt's barn a, a pilgrimage to Walt's barn is something that any fan of, of Disney and the company should definitely go and do
0: well they can find all the information locator maps and everything on our Carolwood website so they're there carolwood.org or.com.
3: excellent well again I want to thank you so much Michael Brogy uh, for, for taking time to sit and chat with us about uh, you know you and your ties to the company and your Incredible experiences about Walt Disney. I know so many of us were thinking as you were talking about, you know, Walt Disney serving me ice cream on a Saturday. You know, like like it wasn't a big deal, but um, it was definitely something special. Um, what you were able to do and what you're accomplishing now, both what with, with uh, what you did with the Fort Wilderness Railroad and some of the elements of the other railroads in the theme parks with the Carolwood Pacific and what you're doing on tour. Again, your book is Walt Disney's Railroad Story, The Small-Scale Fascination That Led to a Full-Scale Kingdom. I will put a link up to that in the show notes. Very highly recommended, very beautiful, and obviously very, very informative. Michael, again, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you, Lou. It's always a pleasure and look forward to seeing you at the next Carrollwood event.
3: Absolutely.
4: Greetings, WDW Radio Show listeners. This is Jeff Pepper with a new installment of DSI, Disney Scene Investigation. As you can tell from the opening, we are at the railroad station right at the entrance to the Magic Kingdom here at Walt Disney World. But instead of hopping on board one of the trains, we're going to head down the steps to the ground level to the location of our next Disney scene. Now be careful, be very careful, this is probably one of the most dangerous places in the Magic Kingdom. This is the location of Stroller Rental. Activity here can often be pretty intense, especially in the early morning hours. So hug the walls closely and proceed carefully so as not to sustain any injury to the lower half of your body, especially your calves and ankles. Now, the object of our investigation hangs on the wall in this area, amidst numerous items relating to Disney Railroad history. There's a series of posters here that feature the various steam engines, but it is in fact an object called the Train Bulletin that we are looking for. The Train Bulletin is a large, framed blackboard that displays the station's arriving and departing trains. There are five separate lines of information, and the location names listed on those lines are in fact puzzles of Disney trivia. So, it is now time for us to carefully begin our investigation. Let's head on over to the scene, duck under that yellow Q line tape, and begin our careful examination of the train bulletin. Oh, by the way, make sure you have your DSI name badges handy, just in case we're stopped by Disney security. Okay, looking at the first line on the uh, train bulletin, it shows an arriving train from Grizzly Bear Flats, and the departing train is heading towards Kimball Canyon. These references in fact pay tribute to Disney Studio veteran Ward Kimball. Kimball was one of Disney's legendary Nine Old Men, who were his key animators during the studio's heyday. Kimball also directed numerous episodes of the Disney television program, most notably the series of Tomorrowland episodes that aired during the late 1950s. But, relative to the train bulletin, Kimball was a railroad enthusiast, and in 1938, he acquired a locomotive from the Nevada Central Railroad and also a Southern Pacific Line passenger coach. He restored them, laid track, built a station, and thus the Grizzly Flats Railroad was born in Kimball's own backyard. Yes, he built all of this in his backyard. Much of Walt Disney's own later interest in railroad and his own scale model, Carrollwood Pacific Line, in his backyard was inspired and helped along by Ward Kimball. Dropping down to the next line on the bulletin, it shows an arriving train from Hickory and a departing train for Siddons City. Now These locations are derived from the 1966 film Follow Me Boys. It features the character of Lemuel Siddons, a jazz musician turned scoutmaster, played by Disney legend Fred McMurray. The setting of the movie is the quaint little town of Hickory, Illinois, during the 1930s and 1940s. Next, we have the locations of Medfield and Rutledge. These are in fact the names of the two rival colleges from the movies The Absent-Minded Professor and its sequel, Son of Flubber. Both films starred Fred McMurray as Professor Ned Brainerd. And Medfield College was also used as the setting for the 1969 movie The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, starring Kurt Russell as the character of Dexter Riley. Now, this actually connects to another Disney scene. And this one is over in Epcot in the Journey to Imagination Pavilion. When you're riding that attraction, look closely in the Imagination Institute's computer room. There you will see a Medfield College jacket hanging on a coat rack, and I believe there's also a pair of tennis shoes nearby as well. Okay, our next line shows a set of trains arriving and departing from Harrington Hills and Pendergrass Plains. Harrington is the small town setting for the 1960 film Pollyanna notable as Hayley Mills' first film for Disney. Pendergrass is the name of an old curmudgeon in the movie, portrayed by Adolph Menju, who takes on a bit of a happier demeanor thanks to the story's young heroine, Pollyanna. Now, the time period and the setting of Pollyanna is turn-of-the-century America, which closely matches the time reflected by the train station and the rest of Main Street, USA. Now, the final line on the bulletin is for the very frontier-sounding destinations of Bullwhip and Griffin Gulch. These make reference to the 1967 film The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin, which starred Roddy McDowell as a proper Boston butler transplanted into the Wild West at the time of the California Gold Rush. So, there you have it. We have used our carefully honed DSI skills to decipher the up-to-now somewhat mysterious train bulletin. Another case solved by our crack team of DSI investigators. If you'd like to see the file photo of the train bullet, check the show notes for this specific episode of the WDW radio show. And more extended DSI case files can be found at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. And stay tuned here for future episodes of DSI right here on the WDW radio show. We'll now have our dispatch redirect you back to your host, Mr. Lou Mangiello.
3: Our first email this week is actually a follow-up to something that I've discussed over the past couple weeks and offers a nice tip for some of our listeners, and it comes from Bobby. He says, I posted this out on the forums but thought it might be helpful to mention this during the podcast as an addendum to the recent Disney Dining discussion. If you're planning on attending the Food and Wine Festival, then upgrading to the Disney Dining plan is imperative. That's because most, if not all, of the food options along the World Showcase Promenade count as snack options. My family has done this in the past two years, and we save all of our snacks for the festival. Not only does it save you money, but it also allows you to try a myriad of dishes from other cultures. Of course, if you're planning on using it this year, keep listening to the WDW radio show and find out first what Disney decides about free dining. Well, Bobby, thank you very much. That is a great tip, and we're hoping that within the next few days, Disney is going to announce that free dining is going to be returning. I'm going to talk more about the Food & Wine Festival in more depth as it gets closer and more details are revealed. What we do know now is that the Food & Wine Festival is supposed to run from September 28th through November 11th, 2007. Again, I'll put a link up in the show notes to the Disney page for more information about Food & Wine, and we'll talk about it more as the event approaches. Our second email is... Lou, loving the show, really loved the new intro. My husband and I are planning a vacation to Walt Disney World in November. Sometimes we like it when there is nothing going on and you can just enjoy all the parks. We prefer to spend less on our room, who spends much time there anyway, and more on something special for ourselves, a wonderful dinner and special piece of jewelry or art, etc. Last time at Walt Disney World, we stayed at the All-Star Music Resort. And although we had no complaints about it, we do like to try different places. Where is the best place to stay on property for those who choose not to splurge on the room? Thanks for your thoughts. Keep the great shows coming. I love the interviews and a variety of guests. Can't wait till next time, Kelly. Well, Kelly, thank you very much. And I have two words for you. Pop century. Well, actually, make that four, since most people seem to know it now as Scopa Towers. I am with you 100% about time spent in the room, especially when I go down alone or with just my wife. We do go commando style. I'm out of the room, you know, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, not getting back until very, very late at night. It really is just a place uh, with a bed, a shower, and uh, hopefully internet access. So uh, I have stayed at a number of the resorts, and like you, I like to try different places all the time. But I've got to say that I think Pop Century is far, far better than than the All-Star Resorts for a number of reasons. You have location, uh, the quality of the room, the amenities, the theming, etc. Everything pop is wonderful. It's a food court area. There's classic concoctions, which is a, uh, a bar. There's pizza delivery. There's the Petals Pool Bar. Um, there's a, a great selection of food if you want to eat at the resort. But again, uh, I think it's just the, the resort, especially for the price, is kind of a step above. I think it's it's a value resort plus, especially in comparison to the all-star resorts. Diane Thomas writes in and says, Hi, Lou. I love your new podcast. You're doing a great job. Thank you, Diane. My husband and I are very interested in the windows along Main Street, pictures, researching the people, etc. Quick question for you. Does Walt's daughter Sharon have a window? And if so, where is it located? Keep up the great work, Diane. Diane, like you, I am a, uh, you know, I am a, I love the details, especially along Main Street USA. And this is something that I'm going to cover in a lot more depth depth than when I finally get around to releasing the first of my Mouse Tour CDs, because the first place I'm going to cover is Main Street USA. And I am going to talk about at least some of the windows up there, because they do tell stories and they do pay homage to a lot of people that had much to do with the creation of the theme park. With regard to Walt's daughter, Sharon, specifically, she does have a window on Main Street, but you may not be able to spot it as easily as you think. And that's because the name on there does not say Sharon Disney, but it says Sharon Lund. And the window itself reads, William and Sharon Lund Gallery, exhibiting only authentic works of art, genuine antiques, selected by Victoria, Bradford, and Michelle. Now you're right, Sharon Disney was Walt, who was her younger daughter, and she married William Lund. William Lund was actually her second marriage as her first husband, who was Bob Brown. He passed away from cancer just a year after Walt's death. So, and their three children, uh, Victoria, Bradford, and Michelle, are obviously also honored with this window. Uh, you can find it on the right-hand side of Main Street as you're approaching the castle. If you look at the watch shop, kind of look up and go two windows to the left, you'll see there's a, um, a, a an image of a cat, like a, an image of a white cat in a red square. I'm going to post a picture of this up in the show notes, as well as hopefully some kind of reference, so you can see exactly where to find it. My next question says, hey, my name is Lou from New Jersey. Hey, mine too. Soon to be in Orlando, Florida. Also, hopefully me. Moving there in June. Not quite yet. (laughs) Anyway, big fan of the podcast. I have a question about the parade that used to be in Epcot a couple of years ago. Tapestry of Nations Parade, I think it's called. My family and I were big fans of the parade. Anyway, I was curious to hear your opinion on it and why they got rid of it or if it's at another park, especially since you hear it every night after Illuminations as you exit Epcot. What a tease for us. Also, I'd like to hear your opinion on a parade needed for Epcot, if any. Thanks for the great podcast for all of us to enjoy, Lou. Lou, thank you for the great question and good luck on your move to Orlando. Yes, I am a little bit jealous. You are talking about the Tapestry of Nations Parade, also known as the Tapestry of Dreams Parade. And like you, I loved it as I think it offered some of the best music in the parks still to this day, as well as a very, very unique sort of uh, type of parade. And it was unique for a variety of reasons. Uh, Tapestry of Nations was actually in development for a long time and it was brought in and created for the 15-month Millennium Celebration held in Epcot. Now, it kind of went through a couple of different machinations of the name. It was originally going to be called Caravan of the Giants. And if you've ever seen the parade and the size of the performers, you'd see why. It was then going to be called Millennium 2000, then Earth 2000, then Parade of Nations. They finally settled on Tapestry of Nations. Uh, When the Millennium celebration ended, the parade changed just a little bit. Uh, They had to uh, change a few of the elements in there, as well as some of the names of some of the characters but it was renamed Tapestry of Dreams. So um, that, that's a lot of names for a single parade, which ended up obviously closing on March 1st, 2003, unfortunately. Uh, there's been a number of speculated reasons why. Uh, one, the, the size of the, the, the things that the performers had to have on were very, very tall. And they often caught the wind and they were very difficult to manipulate, especially when the weather got bad or when it rained. Um, again, it was a shame because the music was, was beautiful. The parade itself was beautiful. I'll try and put some pictures up in the show notes or at least some links to some videos so you can check it out. But it was, it was also unique for other reasons as well because when the parade ran, it was actually three kind of mini parades running at the same time. They kind of broke it up along the World Showcase Promenade. There was one parade between Mexico and Germany, one that ran between Germany and Morocco and a third that ran between Morocco and Canada. So it wasn't just one parade that kind of went around the promenade. Also, there were two shows per night, which was great because the first one would run east to west, for example, from uh, Mexico to Germany, and then the second parade would run from west to east, going in the opposite way. Um, The parade was big, it was beautiful, it had more than 150 performers, all kinds of very unique characters, it had the Sage of Time and, and the Dream Seekers, that had these um, giant butterfly nets. And what they, the other thing they used to do too was that it was interactive in that these dream seekers would actually kind of collect slips of paper that kids in Epcot could write their dreams on throughout the day. You know, kind of a precursor to the KidCot fun stops. They would write their dreams in and the dream captors would go around and pick up these from kids. So it was actually very cool. Uh, it, again, it was big, it was grand, it was beautiful. And again, it, it's, I'm sure I'm not the only one along with you that was sad to see it go. Jeffrey Spiegel writes in and says, Hi, Lou. I enjoyed your podcast that covered the history of the 3D films at Walt Disney World. Your mention of the Agrabah rendering and Disney Quest would have been the perfect segue into mentioning the Disney Vision Imagineering Lab that was at Epcot in 1984. I'm sorry, 1994. Unfortunately, no mention of this brief but very unique attraction, and Jeff kind of goes on to use his term geek out as he posts the history of the lab, which I'm going to reprint in the show notes as well as links to photos that he provided. He finishes going on by saying, I love the new show. Also, my family and I will be leaving for Walt Disney World on April 13th for a short vacation, Kungaloosh. Jeff, thank you very much. You are 100% correct. I completely forgot about the 3D element over at the Imagineering Labs and Disney Vision. I remember as a kid, now that you mention, I remember as a kid going through Interventions and seeing it and being very, very impressed uh, because I was you know like you a geek I guess and I, I recall it having to some sort of reference to Aladdin uh, or, or the genie as kind of the mascot or, or who was introducing it. I'm really kind of sketching on the details again it was young and I'm sure I kind of blew through it back then um, I would love to hear more about this if anybody has any pictures or more information I, I kind of recall this being a either a uh, a predecessor to the Aladdin. 3D ride that that ended up going into Disney Quest, or I wasn't sure if they were actually planning on bringing an Aladdin 3D ride into the parks. But I remember the technology being very impressive. And again, I'm going to put sort of uh, I'm going to put more information that Jeff provided in the show notes. And uh, if you have any more information, by all means, email me or call the voicemail. Finally, I want to give you a Walt Disney World travel tip, and this is in response to a number of emails I've received. ...from people who are asking about what they can do, you know, maybe for their kids when they go down... ...and how they can save on souvenirs and collectibles and things like that... ...because while pins are a great collectible and in theory, you know, they're inexpensive... ...they range from maybe $7 to $12 for each individual pin... ...if somebody is going to start a collection, it can get very expensive. So people want to know what are some of the things that they can collect when they go down... ...or help kind of their kids start a collection... And there's a number of things I want to point out, and then one that you may not know about that I think is actually very cool. Some of the inexpensive things that you may want to start your kids to collecting are some of the pressed pennies. And this is actually fun. You can really make a treasure hunt out of this. Pressed pennies are, are available throughout the entire resort, and for 50 cents, and just the cost of the penny, there are literally these pressed penny machines. They're at the resorts, they're at the theme parks, and they all kind of have a little imprint of them of different characters or themes, things like that. Other things you can collect, you know, simple things like buy an autograph book and try and collect autographs or try and collect maybe a signature or an autograph from a cast member in each of the Countries and World Showcase. You can collect Fast Passes, try and get a Fast Pass from all the different Fast Pass attractions. What I like to do is get park maps and uh, parade schedules, things like that. It's also a great souvenir when you come home because you have memories of when you went, what was going on, and what was there at the same time. You can also ask kids to ask cast members for stickers. They always have the availability of Mickey and different character stickers. Something else, again, that's free that they can get. But here's the thing that I think is, is kind of overlooked. I think a lot of people don't know about it because it did just start last year. And these are Disney Transportation Collector Cards. And again, you may not know about this because they are not something that's very widely advertised. But... All the transportation uh, on Walt Disney World property, from the watercraft, the monorail, and the buses, the cast members there have access to these transportation collector's cards. And right now, there's 18 different cards that highlight the three different modes of transportation. So when you get on a bus or one of the watercraft, or maybe in the front of the monorail, ask the cast members about one of the transportation collector cards. Like I said, there's 18 different cards. They talk about the different modes of transportation. They often have little trivia tidbits on the back. It's a great thing to collect and try and search for and try and get the entire 18-card collection. Since the program's debut last year uh, in June of 2006, cast members have given out about uh, 200,000 of these. So again, relatively speaking, it's not something that, uh, that everybody knows about, but it's a great free collectible and something that you can bring home, you can frame them, you can do whatever you want with them. Really neat for the kids to do. And if you have a tip of something that maybe you want to share about some other kind of collectibles, by all means, head on over to the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com in the WDW Radio section and share them with our other readers and listeners. And if you have an email or a voicemail that you'd like answered on the show, you can email me anytime at Lou at WDWRadio.com or call the voicemail at 206 wdw Okay, as part of our continuing best of the best segment at Walt Disney World, I wanted to bring on somebody who is the very best at what he does and an expert in so many things about Walt Disney World, our good friend from Mouse Planet and WDW today, Mike Scopa. How you doing, Mike?
1: How are you doing, Lou? And uh, thank you again for uh, having me on this uh, wonderful brand new show of yours. Well,
3: thank you very much. And uh, since since I am in the midst of training for the, uh, the Walt Disney World Half Marathon, Something I, that came to mind for a best of the best would be, while you're at Walt Disney World, for people like you who are runners, what is the best place on property to go for a run?
1: It's funny that you ask, Lou, because I've actually gotten an email from people asking me, uh, and uh, it, it depends upon a lot of things. Personally, I, if, if I were to go to Walt Disney World and I wanted to maintain my training, I would like to stay at Poodlein's because I like running along the, is it the Sasagula, Sasagula River? Sasagula. Is that what it's called? Yep. I love running along that uh, along that waterway. And you run Berlin's French Quarter, you run through the uh, uh, riverside area, and uh, especially in the morning, it's just a very, very calming, very, very enjoyable run. Uh, so that's, that's probably my favorite place to run. I've also run at the Polynesian. I run from the Polynesian to the... Uh, to the Grand Floridian and back, and maybe through the TTC. That's a very enjoyable area. The other one is uh, the Caribbean Beach Resort has a very nice uh, jogging path. But if I had to choose, the best, the best, is Port Orleans.
3: Port Orleans, Riverside or French Quarter doesn't matter.
1: It doesn't matter because you really need to run. Uh, you, you need to run through the whole Port Orleans Resort, not just French Quarter, not just Riverside, because you really need to make that loop. Uh, it's uh, it's if you just do one side, you're really not getting much of a run in.
3: And do some of the resorts actually, like you said, they have jogging trails, like mapped out jogging trails?
1: They do have jogging trails, and what is uh, suggested is that uh, when you check in, you may want to ask the cast member who's checking you in. If the uh, jogging trail is located on the map, first off, if they have a jogging trail, and number two, if if so, is there a map? Some of them actually have them on the maps, and there. Of course, there are some resorts that that won't. Someone asked me about the uh, Animal Kingdom Lodge, and that is not a place where I would want to stay if I was planning on running, because there's really no place to run.
5: Hmm.
3: There's a, uh, so I guess uh, would another place be some place like you know the Contemporary, unless you're running, you know, out basically on you know on the street
1: yeah actually Lou um, uh, one time my son and I was 1997 I think it was we uh, we were staying at the Wilderness Lodge and uh, he and I went out for a run and we left the Wilderness Lodge we came out to the main road and we ran past the contemporary and this was like 5 6 o'clock in the morning and there was an amazing amount of traffic we ran behind the Magic Kingdom ran back Ran into the Wilderness Lodge, then we ran all the way down to Fort Wilderness, which is another nice place to run, and then came back. But but you're right, the Contemporary is probably not a good place to run.
3: Okay, there you go. So the best of the best at Walt Disney World for the best places to run on property is along the Sasagula River over at Disney's Port Orleans Resorts. Mike Scopa from Mouse Planet and WDW today, thank you very much.
1: You're welcome, Lou. Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you for tuning in once again to the WDW Radio Show. I also want to thank my very special guest, Michael Brogie. Be sure to head on over to carolwood.com as well as, our, as well as the show notes for more information about him. Jeff Pepper, thank you for your Disney scene investigation. We will see you again on future shows with more trivia and tidbits all about the Walt Disney World Resort. Jonathan Dichter, thank you for your intro. Be sure to visit his website at uh, voiceofmousetunes.blogspot.com. Next week, I will announce the winner of our first Where in the World Have You Heard This contest. Entries were due by Sunday, April 8th at 11.59. Hopefully you had a chance to listen in and get your entries in. If not, don't worry. I will do more of these kind of contests as well as another very special contest coming up soon. Speaking of coming soon, I'm going to continue on with the Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World segment. I have more interviews, special guests, and so much more. Don't forget to to go and visit so many other friends of the show. I'm gonna put up links to all of their website in the show notes. Yes, including the two people that uh got me on some April Fool's jokes, including the Let's Talk About Disney podcast. I'll still recommend you go and visit them, even though I was completely scammed last week. Their Cinderella Castle stay was their April Fool's joke. Paul Barry at Window to the Magic. If you hadn't caught his April Fool's episode as yet, please do. Um it was both uh, funny and sad at the same time as Paul um, it, Paul did a great, well, listen for yourself. But uh, I still do recommend both those shows. Anyway, uh, be sure, like I said, to please keep on interacting with the show, either by email at lou at wdwradio.com, call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW, or come on, talk about anything you've heard on the show or what you want to hear over at the DisneyWorldTrivia.com message forums. We have a complete forum set up just for talking about things you've heard on the show. Finally, don't forget to go over to the show notes page over at WDWRadio.com for more information about anything that you've heard on this show as well as additional links, photos, and more. That is going to do it this week. I sincerely want to thank you for coming back Tuning in once again, please help spread the word, and I will see you next week. For those of you celebrating, have a happy Easter. See ya.
1: Hey, this is Jada from Denver, South Carolina. I just love your show,
5: and I'm here with my best friend Sam right now. Hey, what's up? Well, I'll talk to y'all later. Oh, hi, how did you What a swell show! Hi, Lou. This is uh, Brian from Jacksonville calling again. Just wanted to comment on uh, your podcast, your recent one where you're talking about classic attractions at Walt Disney World, and uh, basically just you know let you know where I stand on it. I think uh, classic attractions are definitely ones that have been around for twenty plus years. Um, you know, I, since my uh, first visit to Walt Disney World wasn't until the mid '80s. Uh, I consider uh, attractions like Big Thunder Mountain and uh, maybe even Splash Mountain to be like uh, classic attractions, but certainly the Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Haunted Mansion, uh, you know, although they weren't, you know, some of them weren't operational on opening day, uh, certainly seems like they were because they've been around for so long. So, and I definitely think uh, some of them like Tower of Terror, Rock and Roller Coaster, uh, just some of those just uh hands down e ticket attractions I think will will come, you know, stand the test of time and come to be known as classic attractions as well. So that's just where I stand. And uh, on a little side tangent, uh I just wanted to let you know that I heard through another podcast, <laughs> uh, W D W today. Uh, just heard it that I guess uh, Matt Hotchberg is gonna be joining you as a co host. Cannot tell you how excited I am to hear that. Um your your podcast and WDW Today are probably the uh, two that I listen to religiously. Uh, as soon as they come out, I'm downloading them. So uh, I'm really excited, and I can't wait to hear what you guys cook up. Talk to you later. Bye.